Our Old Testament lesson for us this morning comes from Psalm 118, verses 5 to 9. If you don't have a Bible, the words can be found in the bulletin. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And now, our New Testament lesson, a little bit longer this morning, is Hebrews chapter 13. We will not cover the whole chapter this morning, uh, but we will read the whole chapter. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Remember those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral the adulteress. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we could confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. And forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch of your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. And ever, amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that you've given uh, to us uh, through your apostles. We do ask that as we hear your word read, and especially as we hear it preached, that our Savior would uh, govern his church and strengthen and comfort us and give us direction for the days to come. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. How do you prepare for the end of the world? I think many of us uh, recall just a number of uh, years ago that there was a famous uh, Bible radio preacher who proclaimed that the end of the world was nigh. Therefore, everyone was to abandon their churches. If you were to read uh, of the history of religious sects and cults uh, in America in the 19th century, I think for just about any of these groups, you ultimately find uh, one thing in common with each of these, the urging for the abolition of marriage. I think uh, when faced with the prospect of the end, we act rather oddly. It's not just for religious folks, though. You also find it among the irreligious folks as well, Uh, those we might call materialists, those focused on this present age. Think of how people are responding even in the midst of a mild pandemic, in the midst of the riots, the protests, the pillaging, and the looting. I think how we um, live with the prospect of the end in sight, or at least the, the upsetting of the world as we know it, really exposes something about the things that we love and cherish, doesn't it? Well, one of the things that we find in the book of Hebrews is this very thing. The end of the world is, in fact, upon us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 say that very thing. In these last days, God has spoken in his Son. Christ has ascended on high, resurrected from the dead, and has taken his seat as our great high priest and is, in fact, the king of the ages. So how should we then live? Should we abandon church? Should we uh, disregard marriage? Should we uh, seek to collect as many toys as we can get uh, before the end comes? Well, I think we find here in chapter 13 the answer, really the, uh, the, that, that, that burning question in light of the deep theology that we found as we've studied the book of Hebrews for the past several years. I think we, are, we should be surprised in some ways that the answer that Hebrews gives sounds quite ordinary. At the same time, compared with how the rest of the world acts in light of the end of the world, what we are called to do is quite extraordinary. And it's simply this. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. It is not a new commandment in many ways. And yet the end of Hebrews concerns the end of the world. How we are to act as we await the return of our Savior. How we are to act as pilgrims and strangers in this land. This morning we will reflect on life together as we press on to Zion. And and what we see in Hebrews chapter 13 is it focuses on six social relationships. What it means to love one another as we press on to Zion. You see it on the first in verse 1, that of the sibling. Verse 2, that of the stranger. Verse 3, that of the sufferer. Verse 4, that of the spouse. Verses 5 and 6, that of the self. And verses 7 to 19, 
that of our superiors. Now, before I go ahead, let me just say we're not going to cover all six of these. So there are not six points today. We're only going to focus on uh, the first three. But since uh, this is our last week in Hebrews, uh, I will briefly mention the final three towards the end. So sibling, stranger, and sufferer. We'll really only focus on the first three verses at hand and then try to uh, at least give something of an ending uh, to this uh, series. But the first thing we see here, uh, we find, is uh, love for the sibling, we might say it. You see here in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. In other words, let it remain. One of the things that we've seen over and over again is that this present world is, in fact, passing away. It's a repeated phrase and and theme that we see throughout the whole of the Bible. Uh, uh, The the grass flower, uh, the grass uh, and the flowers fade, but it is the word of God which abides forever. Uh, Though the the, the Lord himself made the mountains, the skies, the sea, and the stars, all those things will be folded up. All those things will pass away, according to Psalm 90. But from everlasting to everlasting, we have a steadfast Savior. I think it's easy to lose focus on uh, that thing which cannot be shaken in the midst of the storm. It's one of the things that we focused on last week. That our God is he who is unshakable. And I think when we lose sight of that, it's easy to uh, let everything fall by the wayside. And yet, what it says here is that we are to be diligent in the midst of persecution, toil, and trouble. That we are to let brotherly love continue. We're not to neglect it. Don't let it fall away. Be diligent at it. I think there's a certain current temptation, at least for myself, when the pressure is on, that you kind of lose focus on those social relationships. You just try to focus on the task at hand. You can become very uh, short and uh, very, very curt. Uh, I think many uh, people in the midst of conflict and trial, myself included, can get very, uh, uh, their uh, fuses can get short real, uh, real quick. And yet there's that exhortation, do not, uh, do not neglect brotherly love, let it continue. One of the things we need to remember is that this focus on brotherly love is not simply a concern for our own brothers and sisters by blood, but it brings into the fact that we have been adopted into the family of Christ. And now that we, uh, despite our um, uh, the place of our birth, our last name, our, our social or economic status, our degree of education. All those things are irrespective because uh, we find that in the family of God, we are only received through one way, and that is through faith in Christ alone. That each and every one of us, as we have seen throughout the whole book of Hebrews, have the same access before the throne of grace because we have the same mediator. And now we are received into the same family. Here we are brought and reminded into view of our adoption in Christ. I think it's a special thing. We're to view everyone here as our own brothers and sisters. And so the love that we have for one another should reflect the love that we have uh, even for our own family members, if not more so. This reminds us that church is not about networking, making business contracts, or trying to climb up the social ladder. This is the assembly of the redeemed. It's the, it's the family of the redeemed. You know, growing up in the, the South, I, you know, I'm sure you'd find it in other uh, churches around here. It would be very common for people in the local community to be a member of the church because that would be the place on Sundays that they try to make their business contacts. That's not really what the church is about. The church is about more than that. 
This is not simply a place to gather to try to um, increase our own prestige or self-worth or our own name, our own business. Although there's nothing wrong with if you have a business and you know, you're a plumber and you're saying, hey, I'm here to help. I'm not saying that's illegitimate, but I'm saying that this is more than just another voluntary association. This is something that is distinct and special. This is the assembly of the redeemed. That's what we've seen throughout all of chapter 12, through the whole book of Hebrews. That we are a pilgrim people making our way to Zion. And we are not straight. We might be strangers of this earth. We are not strangers to one another. And so we are to let brotherly love continue. Well, the love that we have for one another expressed towards our brother is not the only type of love that should be expressed. We also see in verse 2 that there is a love extended towards the stranger. I think many of us are familiar with the word xenophobia, the fear of strangers. Well, in verse 1, it used, uh, verse 1 used that, that language of brotherly love, Philadelphia, the love of the brother. Now in verse 2, he says not to neglect philoxenia, the love of the stranger. The ESV translates it, I think, rightly, hospitality. Remember our context. It's the end of the ages. The end of the world is upon us. Christ is soon to return. Again, you read about the history of other religious groups, and and so many people seem to focus on what you might call the holy huddle, uh, acting something like ostriches, sticking their head in the sand, uh, forgetting about the world around them. However, what we find here in Hebrews 13 is there's not a distinction between, uh, or a separation between uh, siblings and strangers, but we are called to love both. It's not that you're to love your own and then hate everyone else. Let brotherly love continue, but also do not neglect the love of strangers. I think the Great Commission keeps us from becoming those types of ostriches. It's not a retreat, but an engagement with the world in light of the end as we seek to serve those around us, extending grace to those who cannot return the favor. That's what the book of James is about, if you recall. That when you invite people over for a meal, don't invite others who are able to pay you back, as if this is, again, some type of big social network. Rather, we to extend grace to those who are not able to uh, extend grace in return, as we model our Savior himself, who has done the same thing for us. He who was rich beyond all splendor for love's sake became poor, that out of his poverty we might inherit the wealth of heaven. Remember in the ancient world, uh, there were no such things as holiday inns. Uh, There was no travel lodge. There was uh, no Marriott. If you were to travel somewhere, uh, then you were dependent upon the company of strangers. And that's what the, this focus here on hospitality uh, regards. Uh, there seems to be a scriptural allusion to Genesis chapter 18 and 19, where Abraham and Lot were both, and so on separate occasions, welcomed strangers. And in the process of doing so, entertained angels, though they did not know it. And as a result of their hospitality, both received a blessing. Abraham, the promise of a son, and Lot, the salvation of his family from the gates of Sodom. The point here we see in verse 2 is that heaven is watching. You recall our Savior's own words um, given at the final judgment. So tender is his care, so observant is his eye, that when he welcomes his own to heaven on the last day, 
to the gates of the new heavens and the new earth. He says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me water. So many people respond, when, when did that happen? Jesus says what? To those who have done to the least of these, you have done it unto me. There's a special place in the Lord's heart that we see in the Psalms for the poor and the neglected, the orphan and the widow. So important that Christ himself established the office of the diaconate to care for these very things. And so it should be our concern as well. Of course, our understanding of hospitality might be slightly different because we actually do have uh, uh, hotels. We do have uh, holiday inns. You know, it's not like if you're having to travel down to Orlando, you're dependent upon just knocking on strangers' doors asking for a place uh, to stay. So what would hospitality look like today? Well, I think it's easy for us to recognize that uh, in the modern day, uh, even our neighbors can be strangers. Think of the way even which home architecture is, is constructed. You pull your car into your garage, you shut the door behind you, you can walk through the house without even stepping outside the garage, you don't hang out in the front porch, rather you have the back porch. You can live your entire lives not knowing anybody in your neighborhood. So I think in the practice of hospitality, it's perhaps helpful to begin in your own neighborhood. Uh, G.K. Chesterton has this really great comment. Says it's always e- easy to think about loving our neighbor on the, uh, you know, on the other side of the world. It's really hard to think about loving your next door neighbor, because it's easy to love in the abstract. But what we find over and over again is that Scripture reminds us that love is not a bare sentiment. Love expresses itself in action. So, what does it look like to show hospitality? to the stranger in this day and age. First, second thing we could probably say is, well, get to know your neighbors. Invite them over for dinner. Help them with yard work if you know how to do yard work. I don't know how to do yard work. I was forbidden from mowing the lawn after breaking um, third lawnmower as a high school student. My dad said it was the smartest uh, thing that I had done. He thought I was doing it on purpose. I was just oblivious to how mechanics work. But eventually share the gospel with them. If you're scared, invite them to church or to a Bible study. It's nothing fancy. But what we see here in Hebrews 13, I I think Darlene Miner told me earlier this week that this is her favorite chapter. Um, I think rightfully so. Here's a chapter. This is not simply um, filler space at the end of the letter. This is a, how should we live in light of the fact that we are pilgrims on this earth? We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to love the stranger. We are to love our brothers. To open up our home. But we're fine, what we find here is we're not only supposed to open up our homes, but our very heart. There's a third category here. What we might call the sufferer. Those fellow believers in prison. There's that famous saying that we have, out of sight, out of mind. You know, if you don't see them, then perhaps you might not think about them. And yet what we find here is that the author of Hebrews is reminding us that we cannot restrict our concern to those within the four walls of this church. Rather, in verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison, since you also are of the same body. I think what it has, it, he's bringing into view here, I think it's, it's perfectly legitimate to apply it to, to prisoners in general, but the specific focus we find here in verse 3 is for those Christians who are in prison. Because you're to remember them because you also are of the same body. Remember back, uh, back in chapter 10, 
that in this particular geographical location where the letter had been addressed, there are Christians in the area who are used to having their homes plundered by the state. Believers who have become imprisoned. And the author is saying, remember them as if we uh, were there in prison with them ourselves. Again, the extension of that very simple command we find in Scripture, to love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? It's not just fellow believers, not just the stranger, but also uh, those fellow believers who are uh, under lock and key, who are suffering. So we think about what it is that we should do. We need to think about that. But I think this passage gives us a helpful uh, thoughtfulness in what we do. How are we to respond? Simply this, if you were in prison, what would you want done? I think the first thing I'd want done is if I was in prison unjustly, somebody to advocate on my behalf. To pray for me, if possible, to visit or to write letters. If the imprisonment is unjust, to seek legal ways to secure uh, their freedom. But also, we shouldn't just think of prison as being a place that you're trapped. Think of also, I think, uh, in light of all these other things, think of shut-ins. People who are unable to leave um, uh, nursing homes or um, uh, mental institutions, things like that, those who are of uh, believers as well. I remember that they didn't have nursing homes in the ancient world. And yet we have those set up. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, but I am saying that if you're not able to leave, it might certainly feel like a prison. And perhaps this might be a contemporary application of what it means to care for those who are alone, to visit them. Remember those who are shut in. And we see a greater focus on that in the pastoral epistles as well. And then, of course, those are the first three, and then just highlighting the other three. Uh, a concern for the spouse, I think it says here in verse 4, it doesn't simply say to love your wife, but it says to let marriage be held in honor among all, even singles. Again, the end of the world has come. doesn't mean you abolish marriage as an institution. In fact, those who deny or try to abolish marriage, according to 1 Timothy 4, uh, they are teaching a doctrine of demons. God invented marriage, it's good. So we are to treat it as such. Even though marriage, it seems, will not uh, exist uh, in the age to come, it does not mean that we abolish it in this age. It is a good thing. It is, in fact, a sign and symbol of Christ's own love for his bride. Something that God himself instituted and called very good. Therefore, those who are married, you are to honor your vows and not commit adultery. And if you are single, uh, you uh, are not uh, to go about carousing. And then, of course, the category of the self you see in verses 5 and 6. To practice contentment. Don't try to accumulate as many goods as you possibly can. In the midst of economic troubles and persecution and high taxes, plundered homes, the temptation to covet even more can be even greater. And yet, Scripture says, even in the face of the threat of loss of home and property, Do not fear material loss, because Christ himself is our wealth, and he will provide. He will never leave us or forsake us. And then finally, verses 7 to 19, something that merits a sermon all of its own. 
I'm not going to give a second sermon on this. I'm just saying it merits a sermon all of its own. Uh, a concern for those in authority over us, particularly within the context of the church. Notice the language, the commands in verse 7, 17, and 18, to remember, to obey, and to pray for your elders. You know, it's one thing, you know, I think anybody who is in any type of leadership position uh, knows that it, you're required to make difficult decisions, decisions that will make people unhappy, even in good times. Well, part of the point of Hebrews is, well, in this life they're relatively speaking, aren't any good times for, for Christians. It's one of suffering. And on the one hand, it's all good times because we have Christ as our Savior. And the other time, you're to expect to suffer. And now we have uh, leaders appointed in place uh, who have to make difficult decisions in difficult times. It would be very easy to grumble and complain against those in authority over you. And yet, the focus here in verses 7 to 19 is don't grumble, don't complain, but rather pray for and submit to your elders who are given to care for you, as we are to suffer with Christ together. We're to bear his reproach outside the camp. I wish we could go into detail on uh, further on what that means, but there's just not enough time. But what I think is going on is that with this whole passage here in, ver- in chapter 13, if we could think of this sermon as kind of a, uh, a bird's eye overview of the chapter, I think the whole passage is summarized quite adeptly in verses 15 and 16. That we're, There are two things that we are called to do. First, we are to offer the sacrifice, not of blood, uh, the blood of goats and bulls, because that was under a different covenant. Rather, we are to offer the sacrifice of praise. To honor God with our, the confession of our lips, singing from our hearts, that is due him for, for him who has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And the second thing is another sacrifice, the sacrifice of doing good to others. In other words, to love God and to love your neighbor. It's a pretty ordinary command, and yet it is quite extraordinary. This is not anything that can happen apart from the Spirit's work in our hearts. I think any of us recognize when uh, it's time for uh, the rubber uh, to hit the road that we are not able to love our neighbor as ourself. Unless the Spirit is at work. And yet the good news of Hebrews is that the Spirit has been outpoured. The new covenant has been secured by the blood of our precious Savior. And now we have been empowered to walk in God's ways. To keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. That the whole of the Christian life now is not to subvert the social order. To institute some type of revolt. To, ab- to abolish marriage as institution. To, to loot and to plunder. To pillage. To hate those outside of our own four walls. Rather it is uh, to love in these various ways. Of course, the way in which we love our spouse will look differently from the way in which we love the stranger. It'll look differently from the way in which we love our own brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet the command to love remains. To remain obedient to God and not to compromise. And yet to act with graciousness to those even outside the bounds of the church. And we see this emphasis in the middle of the passage in verses 7 and 8. That we are to follow the outcome and way of life 
of the elders as they follow him who remains steadfast. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He who himself has gone on before as the great pioneer of our faith, the trailblazer, the one who did not owe us a thing and yet gave up everything uh, that we might be welcomed into his family. He now calls us to go into the world to, to model that same care and concern for those around us. Christ has ascended on high. He reigns on high. And now he calls us as citizens of his unshakable kingdom to mirror the steadfastness, the ethics of Zion. To go into the world and model the same. Even when the society, the world around us seems to be unraveling, uh, even here uh, in these last days, even here at the brink of the world's end. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we ask that as we consider the great love that Christ has shown towards us, that we would be careful uh, to love those around us in a proper way, as you have commanded us, that we might model our Savior in his love for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let us stand together.